Good morning. My name is Chad. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. If I haven't met you, hopefully I get a chance. We're going to move away from Genesis this morning into our Advent series. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, so if you just turn to 1 Timothy 1. As we've been in the pastoral epistles in the evening service, one of the things we've paid some attention to, though not as much attention as we'd like, is these faithful and true or trustworthy sayings that Paul keeps referencing. These kind of gospel in a nutshell passages, and we want to look at those as a series for Advent to consider together the true and faithful word. So I'll basically begin this morning by introducing this series and then looking at our first saying together. So let's look, if you will, at 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to look down to verse 15. The saying, or quite literally the word, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's ask the Spirit's help as we attend to it. Father, we pray that your Spirit would be at work this morning to help us understand this faithful, trustworthy word that is deserving of wholehearted acceptance. This word of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May we understand what it is that Paul is writing here to Timothy. May we believe it and so rejoice in the good news we hear In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are a people who rightly love stories. Rightly love stories. Often our love of stories leads us to compose and read some of the great works and words of human history. From stories, poetry, and phrases that tend to shape our cultural and moral imagination. And I could list any number. Think of Homer or Dante or Chaucer or Shakespeare or somebody you don't have to think about, Tyndale, who gave us many of the phrases we use now in the English language as he translated the Bible into English. From those kinds of stories to documents and speeches that come at pivotal points in world history and seem, if you will, to turn the course of world events. As one example, think of what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Now, they go on, but think of how those words have shaped world history. In more recent history, we can think of the impact of Winston Churchill's speeches 
particularly those speeches that Winston Churchill gave during the summer of 1940. You know what was happening, World War II. They were speeches that steeled the resolve of Great Britain to fight the Nazis and perhaps saved the West from Hitler. There are a lot of speeches by Winston Churchill in the summer of 1940. Go read them all. But listen to the conclusion of his speech from their finest hour. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned upon us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to do our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Steeled the spines of the Brits and eventually helped engage the United States in a war that could have turned the course of human history had men like this not given speeches like that. You can think of one-liners that are incredibly simple and memorable because they come at important moments. Lines that don't seem all that beautiful in their structure, but yet hit right at a time that makes a difference. You think about when Ronald Reagan stood at the Berlin Wall during the Cold War and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Those of us who were alive and old enough to know what was happening at the time remember the importance of that moment. And in capturing our imagination with great stories or great sayings, we're often moved as a people toward a common purpose that alters the apparent trajectory of human history. But our love for stories and for news and for sayings also devolves into a love of hearing the latest gossip, the latest news or the latest new ideas, ideas, gossip, stories that are not worthy of our attention. These are words, stories, and myths that range from being silly to those that are a threat to human flourishing. We can think of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto or Mao's Little Red Book. As humans, we love stories, we love words, we love new ideas. In fact, we live in a culture that's buffeted by news, don't we? We have 24-hour news stations that continually tell us of some breaking news. I'm sorry, but whatever just happened to the Kardashians is not breaking news. Can someone please tell that to the 24-hour news cycles? Social media is littered with whatever we think is important. And most of these reports are either unimportant or inconsequential to us. I cannot even tell you how many times young people ask me if I've heard some newfangled teaching that's being promoted on YouTube or Twitter or whatever. Friends, here's the point I'm trying to make. Words can be used to lead us to truth and light, or words can be used to lead us into lies and darkness. 
And this is precisely Paul's concern in the pastoral epistles. Precisely his concern. There are false teachers who are using words, stories, new ideas, new sayings to lead people astray from the truth. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's gone to Ephesus to clean up the mess there. Look what he says. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. That's where Timothy now is. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. See, we have delivered to you the apostolic doctrine that deposit that you find in the scriptures, when you are in a town like Ephesus where certain elders are leading the people astray, you need to charge people to knock it off. Now look what he goes on to say, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, the doctrines that were delivered to us, the faithful doctrines, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. See, there are men who don't know what they're talking about, who want to prop themselves up as teachers in Christ's church, and they want you to listen to their voice. And if you question them on their words, they wonder why you're so mean and negative. We're good-hearted. We're well-intentioned. To which Paul says, no, you're actually leading people into myths and speculation and false doctrine. We'll go on. Look at what he goes on to say as he wants Timothy to fight these errant sayings, stories, and myths. Look down at verse 19 of this same chapter. Look what he says. At right in the middle of that verse, by rejecting this, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. See, here's what happens. When you start to believe false doctrine, when you start to believe newfangled ideas, you begin to make shipwreck of your faith. These words are of such importance that Paul charges Timothy to diligently guard them. Look at chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6. Now, I could continue to demonstrate this in 2 Timothy as well, but we'll just do 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 6. If you put these things, now what are these things? These are the good doctrines, the good teachings. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. The faith is not subjective like whatever you believe. The faith is the doctrine, the common Christian body of faith that we all have. Listen, in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. See, Paul wants Timothy to fight these errant words, these errant sayings, these errant stories and myths. And it's of utmost importance to him. Look down at verse 13 of 1 Timothy 4. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, you're hearing all these myths that are being passed around, so what you need to do is teach them good doctrine. How do you do that? Devote yourself to the public reading of this scripture and then teach people what it means. Read it to them and teach them what it means. 
and exhort them to do something with it. Believe, obey, etc. Now go on down to verse 15 of the same chapter, verse 24. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you hear the constant refrain he's getting at here and the stakes? You can make shipwreck of the faith. Persist in this so you save both yourself and your hearers. The stakes are high. Now go to chapter 6. Look how he ends the book. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's the words of the faith, the doctrine. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. He's to teach it, read it, guard it, and avoid anything contrary to it. He's to rebuke those who teach contrary to it. He's to deal with this swiftly. Words matter. Words matter. In fact, some words, as I just mentioned, have historical consequences. You might say, that's right. Declaration of Independence had historical consequences. Isn't that glorious? So did Mao's little red book. And it's horrific. Words matter. Some words have historical consequences. Some words have eternal consequences. By the way, this is why you cannot discount the importance of ministers of the word being thoroughly equipped to know and teach the word. Every time a minister walks into the pulpit, he is standing in front of a group of people and saying, I speak on behalf of Christ. And his words, the words that he speaks, have eternal consequences. He either speaks the truth in Christ or he speaks error. Either way, there are significant eternal consequences for his speech. That is no light task. That is no small burden. And that's precisely why Protestants believe that the preaching of the word is central to our worship and life together. That's why we argue that the true preaching of the gospel is the first mark of a true church. In our Advent series, we want to focus on those words that have eternal consequences. Those gospel words. We want to focus upon what Paul calls faithful or true words. And the first of these words is found in 1 Timothy 1.15. And you'll see Paul use this phrase. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance on a number of occasions. But we're going to look at the first words. And as we consider this verse, I want to take it in its three phrases. In other words, this verse kind of basically has three phrases. And I want to take those three phrases under three headings. The first one is the trustworthiness of the gospel. The trustworthiness of the gospel. Look at that phrase in verse 15. The saying, or the word, literally halagos, the word, the saying. The word is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So that's going to be our first heading 
the trustworthiness of the gospel word. The second one, notice there at the second phrase, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you will, that'll be our second heading, the sum and substance of the gospel word. And then our third heading, notice what he says at the very end, of whom I am the foremost. And I want to talk about the personal reception of the gospel word. So let's consider our first heading, the trustworthiness of the gospel word. Again, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The word, we could translate it, is faithful and deserving of wholehearted or complete acceptance. This word is not like the speculative nonsense of the false teachers. God is faithful and thus the word he speaks is faithful. See, that's the word there that we say, we translate trustworthy, is the word faithful. The word is faithful. Well, God is faithful. Therefore, he speaks faithfully. His word is faithful. It's trustworthy. In fact, Jesus Christ, who gave us this word, and whom this word is about, is the word. He is the truth. He is faithful and true. And the message we receive from him and about him is faithful and true. It's worthy of complete acceptance. It's worthy of your belief. And when he says it's worthy of your belief or complete acceptance, he means something like it's worthy of your belief without any reserve. In other words, you know, without any holding back. Given a negative example, think of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember they sold all their property and they came to the apostles and lied and said, yeah, we've taken everything and we're donating it all to the church. And they actually held some back. Right? They kept some for themselves. They had a reserve, if you will. They lied. The Spirit struck them dead. Different story. Here's the point that I want to get at here. What Paul's saying is, the word is trustworthy, is faithful, and it's deserving of full acceptance. In other words, it's worthy of your complete embrace without any reserve. No holding back. This word is foretold in the promises found in the law and the prophets as God worked miraculously and faithfully among them for 2,000 years. This word is grounded upon the miracle working and sinless life, substitutionary death, and grave-conquering resurrection of Jesus Christ. This word is powerfully applied by the work of the Holy Spirit. This word is witnessed to by the apostles and over 500 who saw him and who testified, many of which testified with their own blood. This word is inerrantly, infallibly, authoritatively recorded in the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This word is passed down to future generations by the teaching ministry of the apostles and the ministers and elders in the New Testament church who all pass down what's been received by them. This word is to be defended by the whole church, Galatians 1, and especially via her elders and ministers, Titus 1.9, Acts 20.17 20, and following, really especially Acts 20.28 20, and following. This word is adorned by the godly lies of the church. This word is the message that is unchanging, unalterable, ever reliable. This word cannot change because the God who gave it is faithful and unchanging. So what is this word or this saying? What is it? It's faithful and true and deserving of complete acceptance. Okay, well, what is it? That leads to our second heading, 
the sum and substance of the gospel word. Look at 1 Timothy 1.15 again. The word, or the saying, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here it comes. Here's what it is. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In these words, the gospel or the good news is summed up. There's your gospel in a nutshell. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you want news you can think about throughout Advent? Turn off your television and think about this news. Here's good news. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Think of that news. Meditate upon that word. Think long upon the saying. Think of the majesty and beauty and awe-inspiring nature of these few words. In this one clause is your Savior and your salvation. In fact, let's just break it down into four parts. First, Christ. Notice the first word. That Christ, well, look at that. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Look, Christ. Christ is, it becomes somewhat synonymous with his name, but it's not first and foremost a name. It's first and foremost a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's speaking to his office as the Messiah. In this title, Christ, we are drawn back to the entire biblical witness of God among his people. From the time Adam and Eve fell in the garden and plunged all humanity into sin and death, into separation from God and eternal damnation, from that moment, God promised to send the Messiah. He promised to send the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the nation-blessing offspring of Abraham, the eternal ruling son of David. He promised the king would subdue Satan and all the wicked nations and bring all people into his eternal kingdom of peace. He promised the prophet better than Moses, the one who not only speaks the word, but who is the word. He promised the priest better than the Levites, the eternal priest who has no need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he is wholly innocent and undefiled. The eternal priest who had no need to stand daily at his service, for in one act he completed the work of atonement for us all. He promised the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice greater than the blood of bulls and goats, which could not atone for sin. They could only be a type of the one who would. He promised the suffering servant who would offer himself as a sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing, once-for-all sacrifice for sins. In other words, God promised, as Timothy will go on to say in 1 Timothy 2, 4, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he has come. And we see that in the title that's been ascribed to him. He is the Christ. Second, Christ Jesus. That is the name God gave him. Jesus. You remember, what did the angel tell Joseph to name the son of Mary? Mary's with child. She's going to give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. I don't know if you heard that. Who saves you from the wrath of God? God himself. 
in the gift of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, I want you to think about that phrase. I think we often hear it and we think, because of Jesus, God loves us. But we're taught in Scripture, God loves us, therefore Jesus. God loves you, sinner, and therefore he sent his son for you. Jesus did not buy God's love for you. Jesus is the gift of God's love to you. And this leads to the next words. Christ Jesus came into the world. Came into the world. Look at that phrase. Think of all that's summed up in that language. Oh, okay, he came into the world. Great. It speaks to the incarnation that we celebrate every Christmas, doesn't it? He came into the world. He took humanity to himself. God took humanity to himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, he came into the world, assumes his preexistence. This is not speaking of a change of locations. You know, he came from heaven to earth to show the way. You know you want to sing it right out. And, and then you realize it's wrong entirely in the whole first phrase. It's not about a change of locations, and he's not a way shower. He is the way. He didn't come to show it to you. He is it. It's more than a change, by the way, in moral surroundings. Though he did walk among sinners in a fallen world and come in the likeness of sinful flesh. What this is speaking to is the most astounding condescension that we can think of. The king, whom we're told down here at the very end of this passage, if you look down at verse 17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the king who is immortal, invisible, the only God, took human nature to himself and walked among us as one of us. I mean, if you think the Trinity is hard to wrap your mind around, take the triune God in the person of the Son married to humanity in one person, Christ Jesus, and try to work that out. If you do, you will find that you're a heretic at the end of that. Well, all we do is we put a bunch of, it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, because there's a point at which our language is not able to even comprehend what it is that we're seeing here. The one who hung the stars, who created the atom, who sets the boundaries for the seas and says this far and no further, who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, the creator of angels and all things, that one condescended to clothe himself with the nature of the creature. Upon seeing this in a baby, upon seeing that, imagine the angels who beheld the glory of the triune God since the beginning of their creation for millennia and millennia, the angels, upon seeing the Son of God take humanity to himself in the baby Jesus had nothing left to say except glory to God in the highest. That's what they sing upon seeing this. He condescended to humanity without any lessening of his being. And in the ultimate sense, redounding to his glory in a way that none of creation had ever seen before. 
Thus, when he humbled himself to the lowly status of a creature, the angels burst forth in song about his highest glory. And why did the Father send him? Why did the Son come? Last phrase of verse 15 of this middle part, that Christ Jesus came into the world, look, to save sinners. To save sinners. Christ did not come to show you the way. Christ did not come to be a good moral teacher, though he was. Christ did not come to merely set an example for you, though he did. He didn't come to help you clean up your mess. He didn't come to add something extra to your best efforts. He didn't come to add grace to those who are already doing what's in them. He didn't come to those who thought of themselves as righteous. He came for sinners. Christ came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners. That's you and that's me. What does it mean that we're sinners? Keep your hand there and look over at Romans 3. Paul will give you a summary which is awfully complimentary about us. It's one of those, you walk into the room and you announce this and it's kind of a end of the party, right? Verse 9 of Romans 3 What then, are we Jews any better off? In other words, he's been comparing Jews and Gentiles, showing that they're both under the law, both sinning. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Is that clear enough? Are you righteous? No. Is anybody righteous? No. Are there noble savages somewhere in the world who's doing what is in them and they're generally pretty good? No. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Well, surely somebody understands. Nope. No one seeks for God. Are you telling me that nowhere on this entire planet is there a person who seeks for God? Yes, that's what Paul's telling you. No one, you understand that's a universal negative. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. No one does good. No one does good. Paul's not talking here about this kind of horizontal you're a civilly decent person. He's talking about good vertically with regard to God. No one does good, not even one. Now listen, in case you're not understanding what he's saying, let him go on to tell you about yourself. Their throat is an open grave. That's not good. If your throat is an open grave, you understand that? Just death in your throat. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Do you ever think about yourself that way? Like your throat is basically an open grave. It's just filled with deadness, death. And your mouth is full of curses and bitterness and your tongue deceives. The venom of afs, you know, they bite you and you die. That's under your lips. That's just what you bring forth with your speech. Death, deception. What about your feet? Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you understand what that, how it's summing us up? We are a people who have rebelled against God. We have violated his laws. We have turned in on ourselves. In and of ourselves, we're rebellious, incapable of any good, and condemned to die and face God's wrath. We are lawless, not seekers of God, but seekers of self-gratification. In fact, our whole culture is built upon the mantra now, you do you, or let's put it in another phrase, follow your heart, or pursue your happiness. Look, those mantras are not our solution. They're our problem. The problem with our culture is that we follow our hearts. And our hearts are wicked and deceitful. Who can know them? We don't even know ourselves. Following your heart is not the path to life. It is the well-worn path to death. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When Paul talks about your mouth that way, he's saying something about your heart. If you pursue happiness, you'll find yourself in the miry abyss of misery. Blessed or happy, makarios in Greek doesn't, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And you cannot have righteousness apart from the righteous one who saves you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. He is our righteousness. Now, I want to slow down just for one beat here. I hear this all the time from people. I'll look to Jesus and go to church once I've sort of cleaned up the mess. Friends, you aren't going to clean up the mess. If you were going to clean up the mess, you would have cleaned it up already. And God is not looking to save righteous people who cleaned up the mess already. God saves sinners. For our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin, even though he knew no sin. So that in him, through faith in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ, the righteous one, has come to save you so that you'd be forgiven your sins and counted righteous in him. Listen to how Charles Simeon an Anglican minister, late 1700s into the early 1800s, listen to what he said about this. Never was there such an errand before or since. You know what an errand is. Your wife sends you on an errand. Your parents send you on an errand. Your children sometimes send you on errands. Never was there an errand, such an errand before or since. His own creatures, God's own creatures, had ruined themselves, and he came to save them. Though it was his law that they transgressed, and his authority that they despised, and his yoke that they cast off, yea, though he was the one great object of their contempt and abhorrence, he came to save them. Though he knew that they would murder him as soon as ever he should put himself into their power, yet he came to save them, to save the vilest of them, not excluding those who unrighteously condemned him or insultingly mocked him, or cruelly pierced him with the nails and spear, when there was no alternative but either that they must perish or he come down from heaven to suffer in their stead, down he came upon the wings of love and saved them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. He suffered that they might go free and died 
that they might live forever. That's the good news. Jesus came to save sinners, the very people who overthrew him and rebelled against him and offended him. He came to save. And that leads to our third heading, the personal reception of the gospel word. Look back at 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. This is talking about Paul's reception of the gospel word, of who I am the foremost. Paul's speaking to his own sin. I'm a sinner. I'm the foremost sinner. Now listen, Paul's not being dramatic here, nor is he saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek. Like, I read some scholars who are like, well, Paul is just kind of exaggerating to make a point. He isn't the foremost of sinners. Look at, if you read Philippians 3, he talks about how blameless he was in accord with the law as a Pharisee, and those scholars seem to miss Paul's whole point. Look at chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 13. Though formally... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. What's his point here? I persecuted Christ's people, and thus I blasphemed Christ's name. It doesn't get much worse than that. To be a persecutor of Christ's church, blaspheming the very name of the Lord. Calvin spoke about this. Listen, when Paul turned from being a wild attacking beast into a shepherd and pastor, Christ showed his grace in a special way. Think about that. A wild attacking beast persecuting the church, blaspheming the name of Christ to a shepherd and a pastor. That's the grace of God. Calvin goes on to say, it demonstrated that the way of salvation is open to everyone, no matter how notorious sinners they might be have been previously. Paul didn't clean up his act in coming to Christ. Christ interrupted him in the depths of his sin and saved him. He was on his way to persecute the church when Christ graciously intervened in his life. Christ saved a notorious sinner like Paul, so sinner Christ can save you. The question is, do you trust him? Children, what if you grew up in the church and what if you'd never been a notorious sinner? Well, you still need grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, nonetheless. And if you believe in Christ, then you're still a sinner whom God graciously saved. In fact, if you grew up in the church and were never a notorious sinner, and your whole life just remember, I believe in Jesus and I keep on believing in Jesus, then Realize that God graciously interrupted your life before you could make a huge mess from your sin. Be thankful for that. Give God praise for that. Believer, Christ did not just come to save sinners in general. I want to keep a hold of this. He came to save you in particular. Jesus didn't get up on the cross and die for a plan. I have a plan. Up there on the cross suffering the wrath of God, you know, becoming incarnate, walking among us, going to the cross for a plan where he's up on the cross going, man, I sure hope someone believes in this. Otherwise, it'll all be for naught. Jesus died on the cross 
for you particularly. He died on the cross for the sins of every man who would ever believe. Particularly, he had you in mind there. You were on Christ's mind at the cross. You were on Christ's mind in the garden of Gethsemane. How do we know that? He prays, asking not only for the apostles, but for all those who would believe through their word. Guess who that is? You and me. We ought to be thankful for that. We ought to regularly meditate upon such grace to sinners like us. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. All that's left for us to say is, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that's been shown to us in Christ. We recognize that we have no right to that in and of ourselves, that we are sinners. And yet you sent your son and he came into the world to save sinners like us. For that we give thanks. We pray for those who do not know Christ, that they would trust in him. You'd be pleased to save them. We pray that you would cause the gospel to be ever on our mind, that it's the word that we would meditate upon during this Advent season, that we would open our mouths about Christ to our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, that we would invite them to church to hear the gospel, that we would invite them to our homes, that we would speak about Christ to them, that you would be pleased to save many. May we also meditate upon the grace that we've been shown so that as we go through the season, we're not distracted by the commercialization of this holiday. We, we are carried away with activities and forgetting to take time to rightly meditate upon Christ and the grace that we know in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.